our gracious God and Father. Lord, we thank you for your word that is both filled with light and darkness. I pray that you would uh, speak through your word, that you would illuminate it to our hearts, um, giving me clarity in my speech, giving ears to hear uh, for those whom my word falls on, Lord, that it would be your word that is spoken. Bless it for the upbuilding of your people and the glorification of your name. Through Christ. Amen. Full of troubles, strengthless, weak, rejected, shunned, despised, lost, overwhelmed, alone. What do you think when you hear those words? What do you feel? And who do you think it describes? Could it be your experience? Could it be the experience of a believer? I don't know about you, but I've had those questions. I, this sermon is a tad autobiographical in the sense of, uh, it relates to some of the struggles I've had. And I myself have wondered in feeling these things, is this okay for a believer to feel this way? Well, thankfully, God has given us this psalm in his word, though it is a very dark and heavy psalm. I'm very thankful it's in his word for this reason, because it allows us to know how to walk through the darkness and to find our way out of it, to see the light in the darkness, to have the strength to get through the darkness. And we can see this, and we will, Lord willing, this evening, by noticing three things from this psalm. We'll notice the pain in the darkness. We'll notice the pleas in the darkness. And we'll notice the promise in the darkness. So first, consider the pain in the darkness. If we look at the text in verses 3 through 9 and 14 through 18, we see the psalmist vividly describe the plight of his condition. He's not shy. His soul is full of troubles, and he feels like his life is drawing near its end. He feels like God has left him to die, that he is no better off than the wicked. His friends have shunned him. Uh, Those nearest to him have become darkness. It's terrible. Uh, And it's not, if this, this isn't terrible enough, He's been experiencing it this way for quite some time. He says, from my youth up, I have been this way. Uh, He's been crying day and night before God for help. This isn't some momentary and light depression and affliction for him. It's been some time. He feels trapped in this condition, like he's locked in a prison cell, and there's no way to get out of it. But what's important to notice is, although this is the way he feels, and these feelings are real, it's not true of what's reality. He says in verse 4 that I am counted among those who go down to the pit, but in verse 5 he says, like, like, like. I am like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. 
His feelings are real, and you can't read this psalm and brush those away. But they don't tell the whole story. And I myself have experienced many of these, uh, if not most of these at various points in my life, more in my past than my present, but nonetheless can attest to the realness of these feelings. They tend to shade out what is actually true. They seem to replace reality. But the apparent depression experienced by the psalmist, although real, uh, is, uh, is the tale of many of us. I don't know many of you very much yet, uh, but I know that you have probably had your fair share of these burdens, depressions. Uh, this darkness could be categorized in many ways, um, in general and specific ways. Uh, maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've suffered with terminal illness. Um, maybe you just have darkness that follows you around, like Charles Spurgeon said dog that would not leave him alone. But while we don't know the experience of the writer of this psalm, Herman the Ezraite, and this is where the connection to Brandon's sermon this morning comes in, we do know the story of somebody else who shared similar experiences, Job. And I would have to recount more of the life of Job if it weren't for the sermon this morning, but thankfully he went over so much of the darkness that Job experienced and how he was agonizing because his friends rejected him. They became miserable counselors. They became ones who aggravated his pain rather than helped him. And again, worse than that, he felt rejected by God. He was arguing his case for God. He wanted to hear from God for a solution to his problem. But he got silence nothing. He wanted to die, but knew he was not right to take that into his own hands. And this is exactly how this psalmist feels. He feels like he is dying in the process of dying, yet he lives. But he can't do anything about it. To think about what this darkness feels like, maybe picture yourself in a prison cell, deprived of darkness, uh, deprived of light, food, and water friendship, anything of pleasure. And that sometimes is how depression can feel for those who suffer it. You, it's all-consuming and overwhelming. As the psalm multiple times says, you have overwhelmed me, you have swept over me like a flood, sort of drowning, like I can't breathe. But despite this illustration, there's one far better that I'll come to at the end of the sermon. But I want to make a note here about depression, uh, a bit of a side note, as far as causes go. Here in the psalm, we don't, we don't know what caused his darkness. We, we're not told really any details. We don't have Psalm 87 that tells us the story, and then we get this one. We just get this without context. So we have to be careful with assuming what's going on in his life. But in other instances, we do know what causes depression. Uh, David in Psalm 32 experienced groaning and moaning upon his bed, tears, because of his sin, because he was unrepentant towards God. So we know that's, that's why he experienced his depression. Job, well, we know why he experienced his depression. 
Satan was incited against him, and he lost his friends, his family, his possessions, his relationship with the Lord seemingly for a time. So we know what caused his depression. It was circumstances, very real and painful circumstances. And of course, there can be biological causes as well. Not to touch on that here. But one thing that's very important to remember, and we have, that can use, this can be used against people who suffer with depression, it certainly was for me, is linking depression with something we do necessarily. Saying, it's your fault you're depressed. Uh, we could say to the psalmist, well, he's doing something wrong. That's what Job's friends did to him. That's what's wrong with you, Job. You've done something wrong. You need to repent, and God will restore all that he took from you. But we know that's not true from the story of Job. So while it may be true that if we feel distant from God and depressed, that we have done something, like David did in Psalm 32, that's not always the case. It's a cliche uh, that, you, as someone may be asked, well, if you feel God is distant from you, well, who moved? Well, you must have moved because God doesn't move because God doesn't change. Well, generally that might be true. That's simplistic. Here, again, we don't know what caused this distance between God and him. And with Job, we know for a fact that his distance was not caused by something he did. So God has a more complex working than we can possibly understand, and we have to avoid simplistic answers. If anything, this psalm teaches us that very powerfully, that we have to avoid simplistic answers. And one final note here about before going on to the next point is that this, uh, the darkness here is so pervasive, so overwhelming, that it, it consumes the light that came prior, the joy that came prior. In other psalms, this psalm is unique because it does not resolve in thanksgiving or praise, in recounting the works of the Lord and taking delight in that. Every other psalm that is a lament, is sorrowful, does that. This one doesn't. So his sorrow is so deep that all he can think about is his present condition. Just like Job, that's all he can think about is my present condition, as he says uh, in chapter 19 that we heard preached from this morning. All my intimate friends abhor me, like those among whom I have loved have turned against me. My bone sticks to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He, it's agony, and he forgets the goodness that God had given him. So this is, too, how depression and darkness can be for those who are in it. Thinking about application on this point, consider how you would feel if you struggled this way, but God's word never said anything about it. In fact, God's word actually said that everything was supposed to be okay and you know, fields full of flowers and beauty and ease. And then you had this experience. That would be really uh, aggravating because God seemed to say this is how it would be and this is totally different. Well, this psalm solves that for us because we have, in the kindness of God, we have a psalm that expresses the darkness of the soul that we actually experience. God's word is consistent with our experience. 
God in his mercy has given us that gift that we have something like this to hold on to. So while some may reject a version of cultural Christianity that glazes over these things and says you're supposed to be prosperous and happy all the time, this shows us that's not the case. The life of Job shows us that's not the case. And also consider this a call to sympathize with those who walk in the darkness, to weep with those who weep, to learn from the psalm and to not too quickly give simplistic answers to those you know who are walking in darkness. Next is the pleas in the darkness. If you turn back to Psalm 88, you'll see in uh, verses 1 to 2 and 9 to 14 that the psalmist brings his pain before God in many cries and prayers. And what is truly the only bit of light in the psalm Verse 1, he says that God is the God of my salvation. This is a, him clinging to God in a specific way, not in a general way. Though perhaps he is doubting along the way, he still expresses his faith in God. It's his ultimate salvation. Even though, unlike other psalms, we don't have salvation in this psalm itself. Nevertheless, in these pleas in the darkness, uh, we can note sort of three smaller things than my main points. Uh, From verses 1, 9, and 13, we can note that the pleas are constant, continuous. He says, I cry out day and night before you. uh, Every day I call upon you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. He's constantly bringing his prayers before God. In the Hebrew mindset, they don't have a word for really everything. So they use two opposite ends of something to say everything. So to say morning and evening is to say all the time, every moment, I'm coming to you with constant, continuous pleas. Perhaps if you've had children or have nannied, you might think of a child who's crying in his crib endlessly until he's... Um, someone comes to deliver him, to give him something to drink or whatever he needs. So the psalmist also pleads until he gets an answer. And this is what, if you read the whole book of Job, you see. You see him pounding, as it were, the throne of heaven. I remember one of the prayer requests uh, Nikki asked was to storm storm the gates of heaven and praying for Michael. And the psalmist is very much doing that. He's demanding an answer. And this can also be seen in the possible progression of the, the Hebrew words for crying. There's three different words here used that sort of demote more desperate cry, more loud, more I need help type of cry. He's exhausting all of his means to reach out to the Lord. He doesn't give up. A second note is that the pleas are honest. They're not sugar-coated. Some may say that you don't need to trouble God with such things like this, with your personal agony and depression and darkness, because God has bigger things to worry about. Or that you shouldn't talk to God with a heated spirit. But this is clearly the opposite of what the psalmist does here. He pours out the entirety of how he feels before God, not holding anything back. 
so much as to even make what seemed to be accusations to God, that he's not acting like he should. And Job does the same thing. He pours out all of his emotions before God. And third here, the, the, the psalmist questions God in faith. Is it okay to question God? I know I've sometimes struggled with this and different theologians will say different things. I perhaps wasn't as sure what to think as I am now in the past. But here the psalmist questions God in an appropriate way, in faith rather than in doubting God's existence. In verses 12, uh, 10 to 12, the psalmist questions God based on his condition. He's essentially saying, what good comes from being like those who die and lie in the grave? Can I praise you there? Will I not be better able to praise you in the light than the darkness? What's the point in this? Uh, I know in some of the suffering that I've experienced and that my wife has experienced, it's like, can I be more useful to you, God, if I'm well? (laughs) Uh, Certainly we could have thought that for Michael. But in God's design, he has bigger purposes. But we, just like the psalmist, don't see the point in the suffering. We don't see the point in being in darkness, in a situation that seems less than ideal to serve and praise God in. Yet, he he continues to reach out to God. He doesn't turn from him. Despite seemingly being frustrated with God, he continues to turn to him. And perhaps some more assurance related to God of my salvation in verse 1. The psalmist here uses a specific name for the Lord. In Hebrew, there's two words. One's generic, and it sort of just means sir, master, used for Lord, translated in most English translations. And there's a specific word, what we'll sometimes say Yahweh or Jehovah. And that's the, uh, what the uh, psalmist uses here. He isn't saying generically Lord. He's saying Lord, the covenant Lord, the Lord who I know and who knows me and has promised himself to me who has revealed himself to me. He doesn't question God in a way that makes you think, well, this is just some generic deity who's far off from his situation and unknown to him. Uh, But to the God who has joined himself to his people in covenant. Uh, As I'm sure Dr. Belcher would point out, the significance of this psalm in connection with Psalm 89 where it is about the Davidic covenant and God's steadfast love and faithfulness promised to his people. We have one of darkness that comes right before that. And the psalmist, but he clings to that steadfast love, that God who has promised himself to his people. Despite losing sight of all of his blessings, he never loses sight of who the Lord is. He never refers to him generically, but specifically. And this is like Job too, whose wife encouraged him to curse God and die, yet Job refused that request and continued to seek the Lord personally and powerfully. 
And it's Job 2 that helps us to know that the way the psalmist approaches the Lord is not improper. Because at the, book, at the end of the book of Job, we have the Lord responding, finally. And he responds to Job's friends not very favorably. God was not pleased with his friends any more than we are or any more than Job was. But he responds to the Lord in the end by saying, the way you approached me, Lord, uh, Job, was correct. Your attitude, what you said, uh, was correct, um, by and large. There's more nuance to that, but this isn't a sermon on Job, so I'll resist. But what Job says uh, helps us to know that we too can, uh, what God says of Job helps us to know that we can approach God this way too. Speaking of, do you talk to God like this? Do you feel like you can be this open with the Lord? Are you this consistent in prayer? If you do, listen to this psalm and others and seek the Lord's face. Uh, as the psalmist does, I know I've fallen short of this. Um, but suffering has a tendency to drive us to approach the Lord this way. To draw us together as a church as we've recently seen. And so in that sense, though darkness is excruciating and nothing we should ever ask for, it is something the Lord uses to refine us. So darkness, the psalm ends in darkness. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My, my companions have become darkness. So what? What do we do? Am I just going to leave the sermon leaving you in the darkness, leaving you on a dissonant note without resolution? Well, I'm not going to do that probably wouldn't be given too good a feedback for that, nor would I want to, because it would probably leave you pretty down, as it would leave me. But that's where this psalm leaves us. And before going any further, one thing I think we should learn from this is that sometimes we need to be okay without answers. Because of all the things God could have done, he could have given us a solution. He could have given us a context to understand this. He could have given us part two. He could have given us thanksgiving and praise afterwards like he does in every single other psalm. But he doesn't here. And so sometimes, maybe we have to dwell in darkness and not have any answers about it. And that's hard. But the fact that one of God's saints who God inspired to write this psalm has done that, should give us encouragement in those moments when we have no light in our darkness. Moving beyond that, we'll find some more promises, some more light, most of which I'm going to have to move outside the psalm for because, again, the last word is darkness. I don't have a, a conclusion to give you that's inside the psalm that brings light and joy. But before going into these other points outside the psalm, one thing that we can note that's rather interesting within this psalm is that could perhaps be a comfort is the psalmist attributes the things that are happening to him to the Lord. He does not see the Lord as aloof and far off from his condition, helpless and unable to do something about it. 
Uh, perhaps many in our culture have a view of God like that who is far off and is not really in control of the events that happen in our lives. I personally don't find that very comforting if God is not in control and things are happening under his nose that he didn't really have anything to do about. Well, what's he going to do to fix it? So this psalmist instead attributes it to the Lord. There's over 12, at least 12 times where he directly attributes his situation to the Lord. I'll read a few of these. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So here he doesn't find comfort and trying to get away from the Lord's control in his situation, but rather wrestles with the fact that the Lord is indeed the one who is in control, who has put him in this. Just like in the book of Job, though it was Satan who was acting directly on Job, the Lord gave permission to Satan to do the things that he did. God could have said no to Satan at any point and stopped him. He could have restored Job at any point, and eventually he does. But he waited some time. And secondly, also, because the Lord is behind the situation of the psalmist and darkness that we may feel, he's also in it. He's present in it. Psalm 23, as uh, we had a sermon, I think, not too long ago on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or again in Psalm 139, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So although the psalmist may feel alone in his situation, and there's no doubt he does, in reality, He's never alone. Consider, if you will, again, the uh, child crying in the crib, locked behind the doors of his room in the darkness. Is he crying without anyone listening? Probably not if any of you are... uh, You've had children who've done this. You've had a baby monitor, maybe, or you've listened to your child cry. The child feels alone in that room, but you're just outside listening waiting for the best moment to come and deliver the child to give them food. Maybe you're trying to teach them to learn to spend more time with them by themselves. Certainly then, if you do that as an earthly parent, how much more does God in his perfect wisdom sometimes let you walk in the darkness for your own good? We have the Westminster Confession of Faith that says that sometimes God will allow his children to drift in darkness for a multitude of reasons, uh, all of which are under their sanctification. Ultimately, him bringing him closer to himself sometimes involves him letting his people, his sheep, drift further from him, even hiding his face. Uh, As uh, uh, the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, sometimes behind the darkness, 
he hides a smiling face. Indeed, I would say always he hides a smiling face to those who are in Christ. But we can't see the smiling face. Nonetheless, he is with us. A third thing to consider is uh, the truth or promise that we have in the darkness is that our Lord has experienced it. Look back, at, uh, let's think back at some of the words that I used at the beginning to describe uh, what are from this psalm. Full of trouble, strengthless, weak, abandoned, rejected, shunned, despised, overwhelmed, cast away, helpless, darkness. How many of these could be used to describe how our Lord felt before and during his crucifixion. Dr. Belcher chose readings and hymns that wonderfully reflected this aspect of how he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He said before his crucifixion, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, it says of him in Hebrews that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears from him who was able to save him from death. And he was not saved initially, he experienced rejection. He was despised by his disciples, by his friends, and somehow in some mysterious understanding and receiving our sins by his Father. So we can take comfort in our darkness knowing that we have a Lord, a Savior, a friend, a brother, who has experienced the darkest of darkness himself. We do not have a God who stayed in heaven and looks down on us and tries to comfort us merely from heaven, though I'm sure God could do that. But we have one who himself came and experienced the greatest of sorrows, the greatest of suffering himself, so that he would be a sympathetic high priest. The answer to the questions by the psalmist, some of them can find their affirmative in Christ, such questions as, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the baton? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? As the Chancellor of RTS pointed out, Ligon Duncan in his small book on this psalm, God indeed did work wonders for the dead, and the departed did rise up to praise him, in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. So that what was the greatest darkness that has ever come upon humanity, this world, was but a temporary darkness, though great it was. So we, too, can have hope that in our darkness, though it seems hopeless, a resurrection may come. And this resurrection of Christ, it, it secures the hope of the final promise, which is that the Lord will ultimately shine forth his light 
into our darkness and remove it forever. Paul says in Romans that we have the hope of glory that awaits us. A hope of glory that is exceedingly beyond whatever darkness, depression, suffering, tears may bring. A hope of glory that somehow is infinitely beyond whatever we experience here. As another psalm goes, darkness may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Yet that morning is not always tomorrow morning, next week, or even next month. Consider those who live in Alaska. During the winter months, they uh, lose leave all of the sun for a time. It's nothing but darkness. And they uh, might wake up morning after morning, peering out the window, hoping to see maybe a sunrise, maybe just a blip of the sun. Yet for morning after morning after morning, nothing but continued darkness. Yet eventually, the seasons change, and there's a side of darkness that eventually becomes a sun that doesn't go down for a time, essentially. So it's true for us, the light uh, does not necessarily come the next morning. We may persist in the darkness for a season, even for many seasons. It was certainly the experience of Charles Spurgeon. He never really felt like he was out of the darkness. And yet, look at his ministry. However, there is certainly, it's certainly true that when the the seasons do change, that the sun shall shine its light again in our darkness. And so much more certain is our hope that the Lord will shine light in our darkness than those who live in Alaska have hope that the sun will rise again on them when it turns to spring. Consider the close of the Bible for a conclusion. And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And he will reign forever and ever. So if you are in darkness now, have been, or maybe will be, or you know those who are, let us seek this Lord, who is indeed a great friend for sinners, taking comfort that he knows our darkness personally, and that he will one day shine his glory through it.